College Game Day, the podcast, is hosted by Reese Davis and Pete Thamel. We'll get you ready for March Madness with expert analysis, guests, and insights diving into college basketball, as well as looking ahead to the NFL draft. That's College Game Day, the podcast. Listen, wherever you get your podcasts. Paul George talked about how oftentimes low management comes up and the players don't want to sit it's medical staff kind of handpicking games handpicking dates looking at the schedule and saying hey you got four four games in six or seven days this is a high stress high load situation we're going to sit you and then he also talked about how a lot of teams don't practice anymore and that's affected the body you look at the 82 game schedule when your body completely shuts down you try to ramp it back up it's hard Welcome to the CJ McCollum Show. I am currently in Sacramento. Bus leaves in an hour, so it's very, very early. I'm joined by Zach Lowe. Izzy Gutierrez is currently traveling on vacation. He's probably skiing or snowboarding at this point, but I want to welcome Zach Lowe to the CJ McCollum Show. Zach, how you doing? I'm good, man. My pleasure. It is early out there. Late eight o'clock out there right now, and uh, late game last night. That's that's a quick turnaround for you. Got your coffee. You got. I mean, you're you're the host. You got to bring the energy. I'm a, I'm a water guy. I'm a water tea guy. I normally have tea with uh, limited honey in the mornings, but I would have had to get up anyway. We had bag drop at eight fifteen. Breakfast is going until about eight fifty five. So I'll grab some breakfast, get on the bus, and then I will have a three hour nap on our four hour twenty minute flight back to New Orleans. You've you've scheduled you've budgeted exactly three hours <laughs> of the four hours and twenty minutes for the nap. Yeah, I have a lot of that time. It just happens naturally. Normally, I log into the Wi-Fi. <clears throat> I send a couple text messages, check a couple emails, and next thing you know, I've been asleep for two or three hours. It goes it goes quickly. Yeah, man, that's that's a long nap. I'm I'm a I'm a an elite power napper. Like I can I can set my brain for like twenty five minutes. Let's go three hours. I would I, a plane gives you all kinds of leeway. But if I if I extend to an hour, I wake up and I'm groggy and crabby, and the nap has backfired on me. <laughs> yeah, I think for us, we're just so tired physically from from playing and traveling that your body just does what it wants. You wake up as if nothing happened. Drive home, and then you have a little bit more energy to play with the kids, dog, or whatever the case may be for for each person. Yeah, I think your lifestyle is slightly more physically rigorous than mine. I think I I think that's that's a fair it's a fair point you're making. Absolutely. This is we just talked about it a little bit ago. A lot of teams are going through injuries, a lot of teams are going through um changes in their roster, whether that's young guys having to step up or guys who are maybe bench players having to start, whatever the case may be. You look at the Lakers, you look at us, you look at a lot of teams across the board with you know, basically 15 games left probably after we record this podcast, after this comes out on Thursday. What has been the most surprising um, start to finish that you've seen so far in the NBA? And and who do you think is a favorite in the East and also the Western Conference? Most surprising team start to finish. It's a good question. I think it I think it has to be Sacramento being this good. I was I was relatively high on Sacramento before the season. Uh, I think their over-under in Vegas was 33 and a half, and I was like, that's crazy. It should be way over that. But for them to be third in the e- third in the West, rather, at and coming up on two, we'll talk about Memphis soon, I would imagine. Um, I think has to qualify as a big surprise. The last 30 games, it has to be the Knicks in the East. And I was I was 
high on them too, but I mean, they've been like, this is crazy what they're doing. They've been a dominant team for 35, 40 games now. And I don't think really anybody could have predicted that. I picked the Bucks to win the title before the season. So I'm sticking with that. I picked the Clippers to win the West before the season. That is not looking awesome right now. Um, I would probably say Phoenix with KD is a slight favorite to me over Denver, but but it's those two and then a lot of teams with a lot of questions, including the defending champs. But Denver with home court, I, I have questions about their defense, and as someone who's faced them in the playoffs and faced Jokic in the playoffs and done quite well against them, I would be interested in your take on can they defend well enough to win four playoff series, but they are 30 and four at home. And I, I think that merits a, a a degree of respect. Yeah, I, I think I'll start with Denver because you finished with that and haven't played against them. I think they can defend well enough to win four playoff series. It's just a matter of matchups like you talked about. Um, I think matchups are going to matter a lot in this upcoming playoffs. Um, seeds won't really matter. Home court will matter for a lot of teams um, being able to, uh, have a potential game seven at home is definitely helpful. I mean, even that the series goes that long, obviously role players play better at home, star players play better at home with the comfortability and the fans kind of being on your side. But having played against them a few times, I think the addition to Catavius Caldwell Pope, I think Aaron Gordon's playing extremely well. Um, they have a underrated signing in Bruce Brown. I think he helps them defensively. Uh, ability to stretch out to the three-point line. Obviously, Joker's Joker. And you're always in the game with him and his ability to pass, to score, to kind of control the tempo. They can play fast. They can play slow. They can score in the half court. So they offer a lot of different ways to beat you. Um, it's just a matter of, I think, matching up with the right teams and getting lucky um, in the playoffs is what it kind of comes down to for a lot of teams. I think you look at the Eastern Conference, you look at the Bucks. You look at how good they are, how versatile they are. Obviously, their success, I think, personally, will be dependent upon Chris Middleton's health. You know how how healthy he is, how how closely he gets back to his normal self. Obviously, he has time. I don't think they respectfully need him in the first round of the playoffs to be, you know, Chris Middleton from a couple of years ago pre-injury. But as the playoffs progresses. He's historically been their closer. Obviously, Giannis and Drew are great in their own right, but he's the one who makes a lot of big shots down the stretch, and they're going to need that, especially if they potentially run into a Knicks team who's playing really well or um, the Boston Celtics, which probably could happen if they made it to the Eastern Conference Finals. Or Philly. <clears throat> Philly just beat them the other night. I didn't even mention Philly. That's crazy. Like, Think that, about that. I didn't that even mention a, them. That was a statement when – I thought for Philly a win that that really they wanted and I don't know if they needed it but I think it was a it was a good win for them against an elite elite team and I think they have the goods to win the East too I mean I just think there are, there are some trust issues I have with the Sixers in the in the biggest games but um I think they're super talented and uh yeah the Middleton thing is is I didn't think he'd be coming off the bench this long in like every week I check in with people with the Bucks like are you guys making him? Is he just going to be six man now? Like what? This is kind of going on for a long time, and hey, we'll see. You know, we think blah blah blah. So I, it is a little strange, but he's looking, he's looking better every game. So I'm I'm optimistic. But yeah, I mean, those three teams plus the Knicks plus the Cavs. I mean, there's a lot. It's a lot to get through the East. It is, and I think from a league standpoint, this is probably the first time in a long time that both conferences are really good. There's not a lot of differences between three or four to 13 in terms of record, in terms of 
how important each game is down the stretch. I mean, you talk about the importance of games here this last 10 to 15. Every team needs to win for multiple reasons, right? Some of it is seeding, some of it is playing, some of it is making sure you're the sixth seed. And then other teams are looking at how they can hold on to home court. Yeah, I mean, the West has just been crazy the entire season. And and it's still, I'm checking the standings now. The Warriors are fifth with 31 losses. Teams six to 13. So that's eight teams, including your team, have either 32, 33, or 34 losses. Like, it's just no one has been able to separate themselves. None of those teams have been able to get any rhythm. Every time you think, oh, hey, here they come, they're hot, there's like, oh, here comes a three-game losing streak and vice versa. Like, I just, I, there's there's teams that are just hard to figure out, and chief among them for me is the Warriors. Like, I, I just never seen a team that's confused me like them with a home road split like this. But, yeah, the West is like... You guys have obviously been been struggling. You've had a ton of health issues up and down the roster, um, but you're still you're still tied in the loss column with Utah at ninth. I mean, there's a four way tie at thirty one and thirty four from nine to twelve. That's crazy. It's it's insane, and like you said, everybody is a winning streak away from moving up drastically in the standings, and couple losses in a row and next thing you know you go from eighth to 13th or eighth to 14th in a hurry do you look do you check the standings do you even like go you're you're a you're a, a, an analytical type do you even like start looking at tiebreakers like <laughs> i feel like i need a tiebreaker matrix like an electronic tiebreaker board above my computer so i don't have to check it all the time I, I do look at the standings just because I'm curious as to who teams are playing. I'm, and I'm a league pass junkie, so I'm always trying to watch matchups and kind of figure out, um, you know, who's playing who, uh, what stars are playing, what stars are sitting, uh, what stars are really hurt. Like what's what's kind of going on down the stretch of a season, because then that kind of tells you what teams are trying to get certain seeds. I think there's rumors about teams trying to get certain seeds to get certain matchups. And you can kind of see how that's playing out. But in terms of tiebreakers, I'm not aware, but I do know we play the Lakers soon. And I know us and the Lakers are basically running a race to see, you know, who can get in the playoffs. Obviously, Bron's hurt. I think D'Lo's still hurt. They're, they're working some things out, but still playing well. I think that Blazer game will be important for us. Um, there's a lot of games that like really are going to matter down the stretch. We have to play the Warriors again in the Bay. I think our last game of the season is in Minnesota. Um, we got, we got Denver again. Like there's a lot of games that matter. Then there's some games that really matter because it, it, you know, it basically counts as two, right? It's a head to head. Um, and you can move up or down in the standings. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance, superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you are into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
Hi, it's Mike Greenberg letting you know ESPN Bet is ready to take you through all the biggest sports moments this spring. The official sports book of ESPN has exclusive offers and markets from Scott Van Pelt, Stephen A. Smith, and me, plus many more. From the playoff intensity to finally getting out to the ballpark, there's no better time for sports fans. Sign up today. New users get a bet reset up to $1,000 in bonus bets if your first bet doesn't win. Download ESPN Bet today. What a play. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. See app for details. I have a lot of questions, guys. You a question? You're the host, but can I ask you a question? Absolutely. When you watch League Pass, I always am curious about this with players. Are you flipping game to game depending on what's close? Are you like trying to, are you watching who you're, are you just like, oh, we play Utah in a couple days. Let me check out what Utah looks like right now. Is it just totally like whoever, whatever the best game is on paper? How do you strategize your league pass? I do both. So I might have my iPad up, right? So on my iPad, I'm just watching league pass favorites, right? Like I might want to watch OKC for obvious reasons, right? I might want to watch the Blazers for obvious reasons, um, so I'll find like players that I just enjoy watching. Like I just like their game. It's it's pleasing on the eyes. Like Jalen Brunson, I like the way he plays. I like his pace. Love him. Love him in a pick and roll. I like how the Knicks play fast and free, quickly. Like they got a lot of different players that I just enjoy watching. So I'll I'll find one of those games first. Bam, I'm watching. Then on my phone, I'm just going to like matchups. Right? Like, is there a good matchup that I can watch? Like, is there a is there a James versus Drew type of situation? Is there a Giannis Embiid? Is there a Joker Embiid? Whatever the case may be. So I'm looking for one of those games on my phone. And then on TV, you know, there's always a nationally televised game, whether that's a ESPN game or a Turner game. So I'm kind of like watching like that. And then I'll check the schedule. For instance, um, I've been watching a lot of Dallas because it's fun to watch Dallas, but we also play them. <laughs> you know what I mean? So figuring out what type of sets they run, how is their rotation, uh, what, are, what are they running to get Kai open, how is they using them off the ball versus on the ball. Lucas still leading the NBA in first quarter points, so he's being super aggressive to start games. So just kind of watching to get a better understanding of um, what we have to combat, but also you know how they're flowing, how they're playing, and how comfortable are their role players, right? Understanding that that Kai and Luca, you know, get the majority of the attention, the double teams, the traps. Now, how how well is Tim Hardaway Jr. playing? Well, he hit five or six threes last game. Like he's playing very well. He's very comfortable. So, I kind of watch from from that point of view. Um, but I, I I try to focus on the players I like, matchups, and then who we're playing. So a combination of three. But I don't know how everybody else does it. How was it? Uh, how was it facing Dame for the first time? It was fun. It was a lot of fun. Um, and I tell people all the time, like we guard each other in practice, you know, for basically nine years. It, it made practices more competitive. It got us better um, in terms of conditioning, having to having to guard, you know, someone who can score on the ball, off the ball, play, make, create. Um, it fun. It's always fun playing in um, the Moda Center, being able to see so many friends and, and, and family, friends that have turned into family over the course of my career. And the fans are always great. You know what I mean? And regardless of how the season is going. Um, they're coming out. They're supporting. The games are sold out. It's a ruckus crowd. And uh, with with the product they've been able to put out on the floor, you talk about injuries. You know they've been going through it as well. Um, it's a credit to you know the players stepping up. Chauncey trying to figure out how to get the most out of his team. Uh, with you know your starting center being out, Anthony being hurt. You know they kind of gone through a lot of changes, and then they they make some acquisitions at the break, but. It's fun to play against Dame. He's very good, very aggressive. He's on a crazy streak right now where he's he's torching the league. Uh, I'd say his last 20-something games have been incredible. His season has been very, very good as usual. But 
he's kind of taken his game to another level these last 20, 25 games. Um, guarding each other in practice. In what in what context would you guard each other in practice? Because you, uh, if you're going starters versus backups, you're not guarding each other. Is it one on one? Is it do you, like how are, how is that happening? So <clears throat> very rarely do we do starters versus backups in um. Pre-season. Nobody because you you don't you don't practice like no, that much. Not much, but for us, we actually with Terry, we actually did practice and we did have some live contact throughout the year randomly. We sprinkle it in, especially when we have two days in between games. But all the preseason, we would be on different teams. So, like, let's say we play four pickup games a day or whatever the case may be, kind of mix it up two on two, three on three, four on four, five on five. We play majority of games against each other and we'd probably get one game in on teams just to kind of like make sure we still have a rhythm to, of playing together, getting used to, you know how we flow spacing on the court where we like to have the ball at all those things. But that was majority of each summer going into the season, most of camp, but then obviously you have to play with the starter some, but a lot of times with Terry, we would break it. We would break each other up where we would be playing different types of games, but we would mix starters. So we'd have like, he might be playing with Nurk. I might be playing with two other starters. And then you might have like one rotation guy on each, on each team. And then you have some guys that maybe don't play as much just to kind of balance out um, the workload or what you might have to accomplish that day in order to win. I think that was helpful for us. And then for Chauncey, it was, it was a lot of the same where we, we mix it up, we guard each other. And then we play with each other because we had played against each other for so long. We kind of knew what it was about, but in, as the season progresses, you have less and less practices because of the workload, especially when you have a high ramp where, you know, for us this year in New Orleans, we played 16 games in 30 days. Uh, majority of those games were on the road. And that was like a month stretch. Came home after like a nine-day road trip, was home for, you know, maybe 48 hours back on the road. So you had those stretches where it's like you can't, you can't practice because you're playing so many games and every day you're flying. It just didn't make sense. It's your podcast. I'm taking it over too much. What do you want to talk about? What's on your uh, agenda? I think one of the things people have talked about historically, <clears throat> outside of load management, I think we should definitely hit that topic. I want to talk about the MVP race. There's all these debates about what the metrics are. How do you rate and and grade MVP caliber players? And how do you vote? Because some years it's based on team success. And some years it's based on individual accolades. Some years it's a combination. Like, games played like what really matters to you for your metrics for mvp so perk is always yelling about how we move the goalposts every year and i and i always am yelling back like i don't know who the we is i don't know what the goalposts are like i just vote how i vote i don't care i don't care about the narratives i don't care about historic precedent all that much like like i didn't it doesn't matter to me that russ won the mvp as a sixth seed or that Jokic won the mvp as a sixth seed even though that's been historically rare if i think they're the most valuable to their team and obviously if the goalposts move it's because that word valuable is like such an amorphous word it can mean a lot of things so i obviously i watch a ton of games so i see all these guys play a gazillion games so there's there's just sort of that general eye test in my brain somewhere and then i have a big giant nerd spreadsheet of like every metric that there is that people care about even if i don't completely understand all the math underneath that metric and it's like 15 columns long and it has everything from per to on off numbers to all sorts of plus minuses and advanced stats and i just sort of 
look around at, you know, who, where everybody ranks and all those things. And, you know, it, there's no stat that's perfect. Some are like wildly imperfect, but if they all start shouting at you the same thing or 80% of them start shouting at you the same thing, you have to kind of at least, even if you're suspicious of them and some voters are, are more than others, you have to at least like count them as part of your calculus and then after that, you start splitting hairs between team record and minutes played and all those things matter. There's definitely, even in the era of load management, it's like, it's tough to win MVP. I don't know what the floor is anymore. It's probably like 68 games or something like that. Like once you start getting below that, it's like, man, it's like these other guys have played 75. Their teams really need them. So it's all, it's all of that stuff. And even the on off stuff is tricky because you don't want to over reward a player because his team's bench is struggled all year so that their on off numbers look huge. Like they're so much better with this guy on the floor and they like fall apart with this guy off the floor. And right. you don't want to punish players for having good talent around them top to bottom so that maybe their that split isn't as big because that, that team's bench is really good or that team's, second and third stars are super good at carrying the team when that guy rests because that's how their coach does it. So you have to sort of know and factor in as much of that stuff as possible. And this year, this is going to be a year, man. Like there are some years where it's contentious for 40 or 50 games and then two guys get hurt or one team slumps and it just sort of all coalesces in one direction. This isn't going to be that year. This isn't going to be that year. It's going to be a raucous race. So if you had to make a decision today, who would you choose? So I have not uh, updated my spreadsheet, my nerd spreadsheet in like 40 gotcha. games. So I, I don't know what the numbers say. I suspect they all say that it should be Jokic. Um, I would probably be leaning Jokic right now, but I think, I think Embiid and Giannis are going to build really, really strong cases. And I do feel like... Um, the questions about Denver's defense are fair and that Jokic, at least in the last 10 to 12 days, has had a lot of games, including last night. We're recording this on Tuesday. Um, they beat Toronto last night down the stretch where he he took like six shots until the middle of the fourth quarter. And I do think I think some of the, oh, um, well, Embiid has to do so much more, take so many more shots or Giannis takes so many more shots. Jokic is chasing assists or Jokic isn't isn't um isn't as dominant uh, uh or insistent a scorer as those guys. I think some of that is a little to a lot off because Denver has the second best offense in the NBA and he's averaging a triple double. So like clearly whatever balance he's striking between scoring and passing is it, kind of working at a pretty elite level. But there are games where I'm like, can we just can you just get the ball in the post a couple more times? Like, there's nothing you can really do with him down there. But I, I probably would lean, would lean Jokic. And there's and but it's close. And there's so many storylines, right? There's the whole like, should somebody win it three times in a row? Right. And then there's the whole wait a second. But uh, when Russ won it, X percentage of voters were like, well, if you average tri triple double, you should just win. Like that's that's the that's the whole argument. That's like the open and shut argument for us. But then wait a second. Russ has done that a couple more times since then. So it's like a little less special than it was when he did it for the first time since 1962. It's very, very messy. It's very, but the one thing, CJ, is like the discourse around it. 
and it's not just media and it's not just fans. It's like the like what Michael God bless Michael Malone. I love him. I think he's a great coach, but he's arguing for Jokic with such like a sort of um smirking. I don't even know what the right word is. Like he's arguing as if voting for Embiid is like you're a moron if you vote right. for somebody else. Like all these guys have cases. No one is a moron. All the voters are trying to do their best. Like it's it's a hard choice. Everybody is very valuable for their teams, and some metrics tell it, some metrics don't. And your eyes, the eyes never lie. You you can look at those players and say they all are worthy and deserving of being MVP. They're all very valuable. They're all very talented. Their team looks a lot different without them on each team. You take them off, and that team looks a lot different for for all of them. So I, I'm just always curious as to what it looks like because you got best player, you got most valuable player, you got most impactful player, you got player that does the most with the least. Like there's so many ways you can shape this. And I think, you know, for me, as I watch these players, they're all great in their own right. I've played against them all. They're all dominant in their own ways. And you're going to be able to make a case for Giannis to win MVP every year. You're going to be able to make a case for Joker to win MVP most years. And the same goes for Embiid because Embiid's going to put up crazy numbers and his team's going to be a top three or top four every year because that's how dominant and good he is. So I think, like you said before, it's it's tough. And now we're in the situation where Joker probably wins his third MVP. And some people are going to like it and some people aren't. But I think that's the way the world has historically worked. Wait, wait, wait. Okay, so I do think, to go a little further, I do think there's starting to become some separation between those three at the top and then the Luka, Tatum, whoever else you want to throw in. I'm probably forgetting someone in the four or five, et cetera. Um, just because Dallas is only one game over 500 now, and people will say, wait a second, Denver was a six seed last year. Well, they were 48 and 34. Like they were a very strong six seed that had the point differential of a 60 win team with Jokic on the floor last year. Right. So, like, that's that's apples to oranges. I do think there is a separation between those, the, the Giannis, Embiid, Jokic top three and and the others but so so do you get do you have to answer your own question or do you as the host get to abdicate the, the question i respect host privileges immensely uh, so if you don't want to answer it that's fair i would give it to joker i think there's cases you can make for Giannis, how dominant he is how good their team is they're basically you know number one in the east i think they're the favorites to get out of the east i played against philly and Embiid. He's a monster. He's monster. unbelievable. But the way Joker controls the game is just, I mean, maybe it's because I see him more because I'm in the Western Conference and I've played against him for so long. The way he controls the game is just, I mean, it's unlike anything that you've seen. You know what I mean? He's taking six shots through most of a game and still dominating. Like, who could, like, that shows value to me. Like, I watched the Suns play and KD is like nine for 12, all tough pull-ups. Like he's controlling the game, like while, while being efficient, like that matters to me. Like, and there's no wrong answer, but like the fact that you could say you're watching a game and you're midway through the third quarter, it's almost the end of the third quarter and he's taking five or six shots and he's five for five and he's got 12 rebounds and he's got 13 assists and there's still, still like a quarter to play. It shows you how dominant they are. And I think, Maybe it's not as aesthetically pleasing as people would like. You know what I mean? He's not dunking the ball. He's not yelling. He just hits threes and he runs down the court. And, you know, he's got a sense of humor. He's super skilled, super talented, and he makes them go. Like, what does that team look like without him? And then you look at the injuries that they had. We've played them. We've played them at times where Murray's played, where Murray hasn't played. He played them at times where 
Porter Porter Jr. has played, Porter Jr. has not played, and the machine just keeps going because there's one constant. And he's the one constant thing that's kind of provided them with what they need. But, I mean, I could also make the argument that, you know, when you average 33 points a game, how, how do you not win MVP? And you can make the argument when you win 65 games, how do you not win MVP? So it's like you got three dominant players. One of them is the most dominant. Giannis is the most dominant in my eyes. And then you got probably the most versatile, least skilled offensively in Embiid. And then you got like most valuable. Joker. So, so, so the Jokic Embiid thing is so interesting because you said, how can you score 33 points and not win MVP? That's Embiid. And I think there's there's a school of thought that's like, well, yeah, Jokic sh- is shooting 63% and Embiid is shooting 53 or whatever it is because Jokic is more selective with his shots. He only takes the best shots. He has the luxury of being more selective. Joel he has both to go get isn't it. and doesn't have that luxury. Maybe there's some truth to that. Maybe there's not. I have to think more about it. But there's also the like, just even throw out the percentages, right? Like just throw out the shooting percentages. Why is 33 points and four assists and three turnovers? Why does that amount to more points or does it even amount to more points than 23 points, 10 assists and two and a half turnovers, right? Like in the aggregate, I think like the total output is pretty similar. And as is the case with anyone averaging 10 assists a game, 11 assists like Halliburton or Harden, three or four of those are probably like pretty rote, like handoff guy makes a shot, you know, skip pass guy makes a shot. But some of Jokic assists are like, holy crap, that there's like four guys in the world who could see that and execute it and and create that from nothing. And like those are really valuable. Those are points, too. They're just points that other people score. It's a very interesting debate. And then I agree with you. I think Giannis is I think Giannis is maybe just the best player, although there's another world, there's another universe where the Nets don't fall apart. Maybe there is no universe where the Nets don't fall apart. Maybe the Nets are just cursed, but like Durant is and like Durant is just the MVP and everyone's like, "Oh, he's averaging 36 and 6 on 50 40 90 shooting and the Nets are second in the East." Like that's how good that dude is. If they didn't if they didn't have that situation, I think I think he wins the MVP. The way he was playing, the way they were playing, if he doesn't get hurt, think about the course of the NBA if if he doesn't get injured and what the rest of that season looks like. Dude, I was at last week, I was at MSG for Nets Knicks. So I'm on press row watching that game in front of me. And during commercials and halftime, I've got on my laptop Suns Hornets because it's KD's first game with the Suns mm-hmm. and there was a moment when I'm watching the Nets with all these new dudes get absolutely shellacked by the Knicks and then I'm watching Durant just do Durant stuff against the Hornets but for the Phoenix Suns and I was like what what ha- how did this happen like like a month ago the Nets were 18 and 2 in 20 games and now this dude's playing for Phoenix and they're like Spencer Dinwiddie is dribbling a lot for the Nets and they're losing by 25. So it was like a weird moment of, of, did this happen? Did I dream all this? It was very strange. The NBA is an intriguing game. I, I joke sometimes it's like a soap opera. You never know what's going to happen, but you just want to watch. And around the deadline, something crazy happens. 
every single time. Every year we do this big trade deadline special on NBA Today. It's like so this year was five hours. And every year, like 10 days before, there's this panic among the producers and and even even sometimes some of the people on the show about, man, what are we going to talk about for five hours? It seems kind of quiet out there. I don't know if we're going to be able to pull this off. And I'm always like, the NBA provides. It will provide. Like, just just right. be wait. Just be patient. We'll get stuff. And like then, of course, like the whole world exploded. Yeah, 1 a.m. too, which is never, never a great time um, for trades to go down. Two more things because then I have to go to the bus. Not just load management, but how do we fix the all-star game first? How do we fix it? You've seen competitive ones. You've seen not so competitive games. Is it financial incentive? Is it home court advantage? Is it like, do we go? No, God, no, no home court advantage. Well, then we'd have to ditch the draft, right? Because then it would have to be West East again. Um, So then I keep the question I was asking a lot in the wake of this thing, which was a total debacle. Um, It's like, why was the one in 2020 so competitive? Um, And because that was the first one with the Elam ending, Mm -hmm. the target score thing. And if you watched, if you watched the fourth quarter of that game, it was like super competitive. And you had like Kyle Lowry was in the crunch time lineups, Chris Paul, they were like, running plays to get mismatches and it was like real NBA basketball only with like the best guys. And the answer that kept coming back to me was Kobe. Kobe, we were a month removed from Kobe's death. They had built the target score plus 24 around Kobe. The MVP trophy was named for Kobe and the players felt an obligation to really go at it because that was so fresh. I'm like, maybe, maybe that's, all it was, but like my point was, we're not far removed from a game that everyone agreed was like at least the fourth quarter was awesome and super competitive. And what was it about that game that was different than the last couple? And that was the only answer that came back to me. I don't know if you were, I know you were not playing in that all star game, but I don't know if you were there. I can't even remember where it was. Was it in Chicago, maybe? Um, I can't remember where that one was, but I don't know if you were there or if you talked to players there, but about I watched it. it. It was very competitive. I've talked to CP. I've talked to Kyle about it. The competitive spirit, the nature, who was in it. I think all those things played a factor. And I think, like you said before, the competitive nature of Kobe, may he rest in peace, what that meant to the guys, what he meant to the guys. I think that definitely played a factor. But I think it, I think the players matter, like what type of players you have in it. You get CP in a game, he's going to compete. You get Kyle, like, that's the way Kyle plays. He doesn't know any other way, right? There's no cruise control for certain guys because they are play-hard guys who are also very good as opposed to just elite, supreme skill. The game comes easy. It's like, you got to, Kyle's taking charges in the All-Star game because that's just what he does. You know what I mean? So I think that kind of played a factor. But I think, like you said before, the timing and it being a close game matters. If it's a close game, no one wants to get scored on for the game-winning basket. So I think that target score made it so that the game was kind of close. And then you're like, nah, we got a chance to win. Well, why not win? If it's a you know double-digit double digit league most of the game, then guys are kind of on cruise control. So I think keeping the game close would also matter. But I think Braun getting hurt might have changed things too when they seen uh, Braun got hurt. Mm, let, me, let, me, let me dial it back a little bit, make sure I make it out of here. And oh, everyone and wants hope. to hammer the players like, why don't the players try? They're just so greedy and selfish. They go to All-Star and they party and they don't try. And I'm like, I, I, I do wish they would try more. But at the same time, 
what's in it for them to try more? Like they play 82 games or 70 games. It's really hard. This is a, a break for them. Why should they bust their ass? Other than do they have an obligation to the fans? Probably. Probably to some degree they do. The fans also, some of the, well, the ratings were really down for this game. So maybe the fans have soured on the game, but the, the league and you know, this like sponsors, the league, it's just wall to wall for players at all-star. Like it's just wall to wall to the point that the game has become secondary on their schedule. Almost. I think part of it would be dialing back all that. My hottest take is I think the draft is bad. I don't like the draft anymore because there's no unifying factor to why people are on other people's teams. And I just feel like if you're going to have a competitive game, there have to, there has to be some unifying reason why these guys are on one team and these guys are on another team other than like, we just picked it five minutes ago and I can't even keep track as a fan of like, what color is team Giannis's Jersey? Who's on what team? So that would either be West East or a lot of people are starting to pitch the uh, U S versus the world as, as a, as a, a gambit, which would obviously disadvantage American players in making the all-star game because international players are still only like what, 25, 30% of the league or something. But that that's interesting to me. What do you think of that? That is interesting. But I think like you said before, what would that do for the pool of players and how they're selected? Would that shift a little bit? But I'm not mad East versus West. I think East versus West makes sense. I think it'd be cooler to do U.S. versus world for the rookie sophomore setup. Like, I think that would be cool. I don't know if you can do it for the all-star game because is there are there 10, 12 world players that are deserving of being all-stars? Like, that's what you got to think about, right? If it's – because there's definitely six. You got Giannis, Joker. I think we can make a pretty damn good team. Wouldn't be wouldn't be count. Uh, I I think it, I mean I I guess that would be up to him. Um, Siakam. Yeah, we could we could make a really good a really good international team. Um, we could. It's it's you know. But would they normally probably would have made it this year? Would they normally be voted in? Is I guess is the question. And then what does that do for the pool in general? Yeah. But Sabonis. So, I'm going down the list. Marketing, you know? Lori Marketing, Marketing. There's another one from from this season. And you guys, all you'd have to throw in the Canadian guys, Shay. You 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 have a very good point right now. You, I think I think you could do it. Maybe we expand the well, we, but there would be it would disadvantage the U.S. players that that they're just just if 75 percent of the league is U.S. or whatever whatever it is now. I don't know what the latest updated figure is, but um. I like I I just think the draft thing has I don't know it's funny like it's there's always f- some bit of humor in it where you know whether they're doing it in studio like they've done it in past or on the stage this year with Jokic and Markkanen and there's always some bit of humor but I I I don't know this feel it feels like it's kind of falling a little flat to me anyway yeah I think I think there's ways in which it can be improved upon I think the original idea was to have players who would never be able to play together, play together for fans. So back when, you know, bronze East coast and Steph is West being able to have them be teammates and certain players, stars, obviously be teammates in this setting. Whereas 
in previous years, they would never be able to be teammates. They could always compete against each other, but they would never be able to take the floor together as teammates for fans. And I think that was the premise of it, in my eyes, at least, um, from an appealing standpoint of what the fans would enjoy and, and want to see. The Olympics, the Olympics gives you some of that, though, and it also people try like that's yeah. it's like it's not that cool to watch two like LeBron and Steph play together if it's not real basketball, really. But the Olympics, I don't know. I don't know. This podcast is proud to be supported by Jets Pizza, the number one pick in Detroit style pizza. Why? It's simple. Jets is better. With the thickest, crispiest, cheesiest Detroit-style pizza in the country, there's no competition. Right now, get $5 off any eight-corner pizza with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Go to JetsPizza.com to learn more and find a location near you. Again, try Jets' signature eight-corner pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Jets Pizza. Better because it has to be. We all know breakfast is an important part of your day, but sometimes when you're traveling for business, you end up staying at a hotel that doesn't offer any. You know what happens? You grab a cup of coffee and skip the meal entirely. We've all been there. But if you book a room at La Quinta by Wyndham, you can enjoy their free bright side breakfast featuring delicious baked goods, fruit, eggs, yogurt, and waffles. And really, who doesn't want to start their day with a fresh, hot waffle? Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. Book direct at LQ.com. We'll see. My They'll last, do something. My last thing before we go is is centered around Paul George's comments, right? Paul George talked about how oftentimes low management comes up and the players don't want to sit. It's medical staff kind of handpicking games, handpicking dates, looking at the schedule and saying, hey, you got four, four games in six or seven days. This is a high stress, high load situation. We're going to sit you. And then he also talked about how a lot of teams don't practice anymore, and that's affected the body. You look at the 82-game schedule. When your body completely shuts down, you try to ramp it back up. It's hard. Have you seen that historically, understanding that you know 20 years ago, teams practiced a lot more? Hell, when I first got into the league 10 years ago, teams practiced a lot more because I had friends that were rookies, and I was like, this is how it is. And then it, it progressively eased up a little bit depending on – how good your team was, how old your team was, where you were at in the standings. It's not like Europe where you get punishment practices, but you might have a longer film <laughs> session. You might have to run because you're a rookie and, you know, it's it's more like a, a practice for younger guys. But have you seen that play a factor in more injuries being becoming more prevalent in today's NBA? So to Paul George's first point, we talked about this on NBA Today last week and I about Charles Barkley's comments like, you know, kind of lambasting the players. And I said, I think Charles is right that it's a problem, but he's blaming mostly the wrong people. I think there are a handful of players who who have a pretty large say in when they play and 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 why they play. And then you have like situations where, you know, guys are discontented with their teams and that's why they don't play. Ben Simmons last year being the most famous one in Philly. Uh, but I think uh, in a large part, it's a top-down decision that's that's for most players who are load managers, not their decision. The practicing is really interesting because over the last five, six years, I have had a lot of sports science people tell me, and it's a debate within that community, we've gone too far in minimizing the non-game workload because part of being game ready is being physically game ready, is having a baseline of activity that you ramp up from so that the ramp up into game action is not so severe 
And in some cases, we've kind of lost that baseline is has dropped too low for some players who just don't practice at all, where it becomes dangerous to spike so heavily into like really high stakes, high leverage games. I think that's interesting. And there's probably more science that I haven't read behind it, but I, it is something I have heard from the people who are making some of those decisions. Yeah, I would agree. And I think, like you said before, guys love basketball. There's a lot that comes with basketball. Obviously, you get paid well. There's traveling. There's endorsement deals. There's media, like you talked about. There's also a weekend. But like the actual the actual playing of the game is the funnest part of the game. Like it's what brings us the most joy. It's what everybody does in their spare time. It's what people who aren't professional athletes enjoy the most. So guys do love playing the game. I think that gets forgotten when we have these debates about you know, spoiled millionaires not want to play. And like you said before, there are extreme cases in which, you know, there's there's tension and there's issues between player organization, player franchise, and they have, you know, situation they have to figure out. But for the majority of guys, they do actually want to play. And I think having done a variety of things throughout my career in terms of I played 80 out of 82. I literally sat the last two games of a season because we had locked in our seed. I know what that's like. I know what it's like to have DMPs and kind of play and have to be like the practice player where you do extra conditioning and everything. I think there is a balance in which you have to maintain a certain level, a certain workload in practice on off days. I lift in season, sometimes after games. When I have two days off in a row, I pick a day where it's it's heavy load in practice. It's going to be heavy court day. It's going to be heavy in the weight room. And then like a offloading day where I just shoot. But I think, and I don't want to tell people what to do, for, but for my body specifically, um, when we get in those high, high ramping periods, sometimes I do need a complete day off of rest where it's treatment, it's a lift, it's functional movement. And sometimes I just need 20 minutes of like higher intensity, which is not the 35 that I'm going to play, but it's still high intensity. My body gets used to the ramp because as I talked to Draymond about before we played the Warriors, I said, you get to a certain age where shutting down the body is not good you, you don't you don't bounce back like you did when you were 23 or 24 when you do nothing like when you were younger you could just do nothing and then ramp back up zero to 100 like a ferrari as you get older you have to make sure those joints are moving how they're supposed to be moving you got it if you're a shooter like steph you're getting in the gym you're at least getting shots up you may be coming off screens like clay like i've seen how they work on off days i've seen how katie works in the summer it's like your body will get used to doing nothing and then when you try to go guard the Aaron Fox <laughs> coming <laughs> off a screen and that Ferrari is moving. Like it's, it's different for the body, but I think, I think he has some truths in what he's saying. And I'm not saying everybody needs to practice more and, and whatever. No, I was like, everybody's body is different, but I do think doing nothing can be a disservice. And that's also on the medical staff to kind of figure out player to player and to not have a cookie, cookie cutter approach on how to, on how to, you know, managing and maintenance your players but i think that is an issue that we that we're facing i think that's a situation in which um players have to kind of govern themselves at times and say like hey look like i know we don't have practice today but maybe for my body i need to go get one-on-one -on -one dummy work with a coach or maybe i just need 15 minutes of work we got a back-to-back -back coming up um that's kind of how i would approach it but i was just curious as to how you've seen the nba change because i remember when we practiced a lot and i i had years where I didn't practice at all on off days. I just worked out. It was like, yo, high minute guys, I'm playing 36 minutes a night. You need to rest your legs. It's a get what you need situation, but that means get what you need to be ready mm -hmm. to play 36 to 40 tomorrow, understanding that once the playoff starts, it's 40. 
it's 40 and it's 40 super intense minutes compared to the regular season is this idea that players are just, oh, there's no defense being played. Nobody plays hard. People play hard. Teams play hard. Defense in the NBA is hard, but playoff minutes are, are different than regular season minutes. I would imagine. Right. I mean, the opponents are better. The stakes are higher. There's no, there's no off. There's no off possession in the playoffs. No. And you're literally focusing on one team. Like your scouting report is on one team. You're not like, kind of looking like okay we got them coming up too whatever no it's like your sole focus is their point guard their shooting guard their backups you know everything about them you know their play calls you know how their rotations are going you know when guys are coming in and out you probably know when coach is going to take timeouts in the other team because you've watched so much of that team so i think it's 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 completely different having played in the playoffs a lot of times the stakes raise obviously it's more half courts less transition like you have to really be able to execute well, we're almost there. Hopefully you guys can, you know, right the ship and, and at least get in the play in and have some fun, uh, have some fun games in New Orleans. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it, man. I appreciate you joining the pod. Great conversation. And uh, hopefully, like you said before, we'll get to, we'll get some playoff games um, in New Orleans and we'll be able to compete on that stage again because it is the best stage in basketball. Always a pleasure, CJ. Always good to see you. Stay healthy. Continued good luck. And uh, yeah, good luck down the stretch run. It's going to be interesting. Thank you. You have a good one and travel safe.